instead of five or 10 people, there's 110 people. I am not just nervous of public speaking. I am phobic of public speaking, meaning I cannot breathe. My heart's beating out of my chest and I am so nervous. I get up and I leave. And there's a fountain there. And I remember I'm just getting my composure sitting at the fountain and kind of like doing this walking meditation back to my dorm room, trying to calm myself down. But I stop and I don't even realize it, but I take one step back towards the classroom. And I realized that, that one step in another direction can completely change your destination or your destiny. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner. And that was Jim Quick describing the very first pitch for his company, Quick Learn. The fear that Jim felt surveying a full classroom of students there to learn from him is in stark contrast to the joy of the success he'd find the next afternoon. But let's not spoil too much, because Jim's story doesn't begin with victory. It begins with hardship, and slowly it changes trajectory with every trial, tribulation, and difficult decision Jim has made over the years. His journey is a testament to the importance of failure, and it is a powerful reminder that success is often sweetest when it has purpose. His story includes serious challenges, severe injuries, and intergenerational pressures, and I, for one, I'm thankful that Jim entrusted us with such an intimate look into his life. That said, let's go back to the very beginning and start with his parents. So tell me about how your family immigrated from Asia to the U.S. My father immigrated here to the United States when he was 13 years old, didn't speak the language. He had lost both of his parents and he was, has two other siblings. They couldn't really afford to feed and take care of all the children. So my father moved to the United States uh, to live with his aunt. My mother was born actually in the United States of immigrant parents. She lived in the back of a laundromat that her parents worked in. There were some struggles. Were you aware of that when you were a kid? Those like financial struggles and like the, the like even the struggles of adapting to America as an immigrant. Oh, cer- certainly. They didn't have a lot of resources to speak of, but they they had an amazing level of kindness of of discipline. They they worked very hard. Sometimes through our struggles, we develop strength. Obviously, you had a relationship with your parents, but they were working a lot. And often the caretaking role is taken on by the grandmother. And you said that you had a pretty deep relationship with your grandmother. I call her my grandmother, but she was my dad's aunt. So I guess that would make her my my great aunt. My parents had um, their jobs. They had to work very hard. My mother had multiple jobs. And so my, my great aunt did a lot of the caregiving for me. She was the one that was always there. But the most notable thing was she started to lose a lot of her memory, pre-stages of uh, dementia. Little things, she would call me by my dad's name. She would repeat herself a number of times in something she just said a minute earlier. When you're a young child, it affects how you perceive things. You're not sure why she's having these issues because you don't have a name for it or an understanding at that level. But that was, those, that was an early influence and I saw right away the importance of, of having a good memory. Memory is no doubt one of the most fundamental parts of human existence. 
There is no present without the past, and there is no self without all the selves we have been. Jim knew this intuitively from an early age. He knew that memory makes a person, that it makes a life. So watching his grandmother's memory gradually dim, he realized how incredibly fragile human life and identity can be. He'd experienced the struggle firsthand. You had an incident happen when you were five years old. Can you talk about that incident? So I was in kindergarten in elementary school and I was sitting in class and one day there's these this noise outside, um, some sirens, and all the kids, they rush to the window to, to look out to see what, what the noise is. Because we're not tall enough to be able to see outside the window, we start grabbing chairs to stand on. And we're all standing on our, our chairs and we see these fire trucks and these firefighters. And I'm watching them in awe do their thing and all of a sudden, I lose my balance and I take a bad fall headfirst into an iron grate radiator. I was rushed to the emergency room. And uh, I remember um, my mother saying that I was never really the same afterwards. I was very energetic. I was very curious. But after my accident, I became very shut down. And um, where it showed up the most was in school. I didn't really understand what was going on. I had very slow processing issues, poor focus, poor memory. Uh, It took me an extra few years just to learn how to read. I was kind of traumatized even like, you remember when they would pass around the book in circles and you would have to read loud, but every single time that book got closer and closer, I would just start you know, perspiring, my heart's beating out of my chest, and uh, my, my throat would tighten up. I'm curious about how your parents perceived the, the injury after it happened, because I feel like especially in like Asian immigrant families, education is just so important. Yeah. For me, my, my pressure came from wanting to make them proud. Um, but I did feel extreme pressure to be able to do it because I didn't know what was wrong with me. And part of me felt like that, that I wasn't maybe enough and because I didn't understand things the way that everyone else did. Through the lens of your, your own educational hurdles, did you view your grandmother's dementia differently? Well, I certainly understood and had enough consciousness to realize that it was just going to be something that I would have to deal with my whole life. I mean, part of it came from fear. A mantra in our family was, uh, family is most important. My dad lost both of his parents, left his siblings. My mother lost her mom uh, very early. And so we grew up with a very tight family because of that loss that both my parents had early on. Growing up in this in this household, I wanted to make them happy. And also I wanted to show the world and myself that I was capable. For most people, kindergarten is a distant memory. Remembering a time before you learned how to read is almost impossible. But Jim remembers every moment with great clarity. Trauma affects people in many different ways. Some people suppress it and try to forget. And for others, like Jim, 
The pain is seared into their memories. It remains just as clear as the day they first felt it. His life was confined by the restrictions of his mind, his trauma, his guilt, and the pressure he felt breaking him down day by day. He wanted to escape. He needed to. And where better to escape than a world where disabilities were superpowers? So I taught myself how to read by reading comic books late at night. When uh, my parents thought I was sleeping, I'd be underneath the covers with my flashlight. And my favorite comic books growing up, actually, were the X-Men. Not because they were the strongest superheroes, but because they were mutants and they didn't fit in. And growing up with my brain injury, with my challenges, I didn't have a lot of friends. I felt like I was a little bit weirdly different and I really related to them. When I was nine, I found out reading one night that the X-Men school was actually in Westchester, New York, where I grew up. So on the weekends, every weekend, I would be riding my bicycle around my neighborhood looking for the X-Men school. Were you like trying to map out where this was like like did you have like a map you're like okay i went down this street or or were you just yeah yeah so (laughs) so when i was nine years old i would actually go around my neighborhood in like a grid formation (laughs) i would actually go down down each street and i would use this old map from a, a telephone book of my neighborhood And I would kind of chart it out. And I was on this treasure hunt to find this school. And every single time I turned a dirt road or a corner, I would hope in my mind that the the school would be there waiting for me. Because I wanted to find my superpowers. And I wanted to find my super friends, the people that, that I fit in with. Just dwelling on that for a second, like, was there a point where you're, when you stopped, like, riding your bike Hmm. to find this place? (laughs) And eventually the, uh, the winter came and, uh, wasn't riding my bicycle anymore. And, uh, along with that, I think I, I put that dream in hibernation also as well. I talk a lot about superpowers. I think my superpower as a child primarily was shrinking down like Ant-Man because I wouldn't want the spotlight. Superheroes both embrace and reject the spotlight. They are lauded for saving the day, but also wear disguises to hide their identity, their human flaws and shortcomings. Jim embodied this paradox. And I think at some level, Jim wanted the spotlight. It just seems whenever it came his way, it was hurtful and blinding. When I was nine years old, I was holding back my class because I I didn't understand as well as everybody else. So I could tell my, my teacher was always slowing things down in order to be able to make sure I didn't fall behind. And one day my teacher came to my defense and she pointed and singled me out. But all I remember out of what she said was, that's the boy with the broken brain. 
in my heart, I know that her intention was leave this boy alone. But all I remember was broken brain, broken brain, broken brain. And that this idea that I was broken. Her external words became my internal words. So every single time I would always say, oh, it's because I have the broken brain. And that became my, my self-talk, my identity. Broken brain, broken brain. I mean, reading was hard for you, but there were some subjects that you excelled at. Math being one of them. How did that make you feel? It gave me hope. The fact that I was good in math gave me hope that I could be good in these other areas. It would just happen to be one thing that I was good at, as opposed to many areas that I wasn't good at. I was very confused growing up, thinking if I was smart in this area, why couldn't I be smart in these other areas? You know, but what confidence I did have came from my capabilities. They didn't really transfer my self-esteem in most of the rest of my life. Jim's prowess in math created cognitive dissonance. He seemingly asked himself, if I'm the boy with a broken brain, why am I good at math? These questions left Jim with feelings of inadequacy, but also confusion. Confusion that needed to be resolved. Maybe somewhere in that confusion was hope. Maybe there was a reason to doubt the narrative that other people were imposing on him. Grappling with these questions, Jim was discovering his identity just as his grandmother, succumbing to her dementia, began to lose hers. As you got older and maybe needed less care, your grandmother probably needed more care. Was there a role reversal as her dementia became more advanced where you had to take on a role of caretaker? There was, certainly. I remember where she was taking care of me and taking me for hamburgers and the occasional ice cream and um, helping me. I remember the later stages where I was bringing her food and going up to her room and bringing her soup when she was um, when she was bedridden. She passed while I was in an elementary school, so it was, it was still very young. It's tough seeing somebody that you love and somebody who you're used to spending the most time with, especially when you're going through your own challenges and they're there to support you. It's, it's hard, especially with dementia and Alzheimer's, because when, they, when someone starts losing their memory, they start losing almost their identity and who they are. As Jim tried to understand his mind and his life, his grandmother's mind was deteriorating. It was as if he was on the same road as his grandmother, parallel, but going in opposite directions. He was determined not to turn around. Not to slow down, but to keep going until he could find an escape from the seeming permanence of his injury. And his teachers tried to provide opportunities for Jim to unlock his potential. But at the same time, those moments created opportunities to fail, to confirm his identity. The Boy with the Broken Brain. When I entered high school, I was having um, some more challenges, especially in English. It was, it was my, one of my hardest subjects. I was at risk of failing, and the teacher calls in my parents 
and this is this was hard even for this whole thing, even just like it's difficult to talk about because there was no escaping being ashamed that I let my parents down, that they get called in to learn that their son is not passing English. I asked what I could do, and the teacher very generously offered for me to do some extra credit in the form of a book report. And if I would do a book report, I would get enough credit to be able to pass that class. And she gave me a book report. It was comparing Albert Einstein and Leonardo da Vinci. While I was researching both of them, one of the common traits is that they had learning challenges. That gave me a reference. Meaning here are two gentlemen whose names are synonymous with genius that had their own challenges. It was a light to kind of move towards. It's something that gave me, um, for lack of a better word, hope. Every day after school, I would go to the library and I would, I would work like I've never worked before. Weeks go by and I, on a typewriter, <laughs> typed my book report. So after weeks of really pouring my mind and my heart, my time, a lot of my potential, I felt like that I created something that was, um, that was, that was good. For the first time ever in English class, I was really excited about going to class that day. I have my book report in my backpack and I can't wait to hand it in. I just can't wait. I'm just kind of like almost jumping out of my seat, just want to turn it in. Towards the end of class, the teacher and makes an announcement saying, class, I have a, a surprise. And he, she looks right at me and says, Jim, come to the front of the class and give your book report. I didn't realize I had to present on what I just wrote. And I go from being completely excited to complete anxiety because I, I have a phobia of public speaking, meaning I've never done it before. I, I managed to go all through school without having the spotlight on me. And I'm so nervous. I can't even talk. I, I can hardly breathe. And I look at her and I tell her I didn't do it. Um, when the truth is, I just spent, you know, every almost waking area out. And you could see the disappointment in her face. So the class ends and the room is empty. And I remember I get up from my desk and I start walking out of the room. And before I do, I reach into my backpack and I pull out my book report, professionally bound and everything. And I throw it right in the trash on my way out. I remember even at that age, thinking I was throwing away my potential. I was throwing away my dreams of being good enough in this area. This is tragic. Throwing the report in the trash was a symbol that Jim was throwing away the possibility of a different identity, of a future that he controlled. Jim was close to giving up, but somehow he never completely accepted that his brain was broken for good. Somehow he knew he could get up and reinvent himself. College presented an opportunity to get up once more. I thought being a fresh man meant I can make a fresh start. And I wanted to, you know, make my parents proud. I wanted to show the world, most importantly, show myself that I was worth something, that I could achieve what I wanted to achieve. Because I feel like if I was around new people, then I could 
recreate myself. And so how did those first moments in college feel? I took all these classes because I really wanted to prove to myself and prove to others that I could do it. And I actually did worse. And I take this variety of classes and, and I'm really struggling to the point where I just don't know if this is for me. When you're working for something and you just constantly get the feedback that the results aren't showing up for you, you wonder if you're right on the right path. And personally, I didn't have the money, nor did my family have the money for me really to be in school. And so I start doubting whether this was a good investment. If I don't have the money, should I be spending it on school when I didn't really have the potential to, to do well? And so I'm thinking in my mind, I start mentally rehearsing how I'm going to tell my parents that I should quit school and all the reasons why that it's just not for me. I have this brain injury and I just can never, never been able to do really well consistently. And um, maybe I wasn't cut out for it or wasn't smart enough. For Jim, going to college felt inevitable. It was all he knew. He hoped, however, college would present new opportunities and a chance at reinventing his identity. But Jim had lived for so long in the shadow of his injury, it felt almost impossible to escape. He had allowed it to define him, and to escape the burden of his shadow, he needed some perspective. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who is like, well, that's a big decision. You know, before you tell your family that you're going to quit school, I'm going home this weekend. Why don't, why don't you come with me and just get, a, get some perspective? And I agreed to go. And I remember before dinner, the father gives me a walking tour of his property, you know, like this. It was a very, very nice home. And uh, when we're walking around, he looks at me and he says, uh, he asked me a very innocent question, a question you would ask an 18-year-old. He says, Jim, how's school? And I just break down in front of this complete stranger. Admittedly, I'm a very reserved person emotionally. And, you know, I just start bawling because the pressure is just so grand that I just tell him my whole story. And the man looks at me and he asks me another question. He says, Jim, why are you in school? And I honestly didn't have an answer for that because nobody's ever asked me that question before. I was in school because I thought that's what everyone did and it was expected of me to be there. And I go to answer him and he puts his hand out and he says, stop. And he pulls out of his back pocket a journal and he tears out a couple of sheets and he gives me a pen and he asks me to write down my answer. What do I want to be? What would I like to do in my life? You know, what would I like to have? And I don't know how much time goes by, um, but I start filling in the sheet. And when I'm done, I start folding the paper to put it in my pocket. And he reaches out and he rips it out of my hands. And I am 
honestly freaking out because I wasn't expecting him to, to look at it. And he starts to read that list. And I'm getting really nervous because, I mean, who wants to be judged and criticized? When he's done, he reaches out and he spreads his index fingers apart, about a foot apart. And he says, Jim, you are this close to everything on this list. And I was like, no way. You meet 10 lifetimes, I'm not going to crack that list. And he takes his index fingers and he puts them to the side of my head, meaning what was in between was like the key. And he walks me into his home, into a room that I've never seen before. It is wall to wall, ceiling to floor, covered in books. Now, keep in mind, <laughs> I'm not a good reader. I'm actually pretty scared of books. Um, they're very intimidating to me. So it's like being in a room full of snakes. But what makes it worse is he starts going to the shelves and grabbing snakes and handing them to me. And so now I start having this growing pile of books in my arms and I'm looking at these titles and there are these biographies of some notable men and women in history and also some very early personal growth books, like these self-development books that really focused on the power of the mind. And I start looking at these titles, wondering like, why is he handing me these books, right? And um, he says, Jim, I want you to read one of these books every single week. And automatically my instinctive reaction, which without filter, I was like, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> Listen to every single thing I just told you. I have the broken brain. I'm a really bad reader. I have all the schoolwork. And when I said schoolwork, he looked right at me and said, Jim, don't let school get in the way of your education. And I was like, wow, that's very insightful. You know, that's very profound. And yet I cannot commit to reading one of these books a week because if my parents taught me anything, they told me to honor my commitments. I can't do all that. I'm sorry, I cannot agree to read one book a week. And very smart man, he reaches into his pocket and what does he pull out? My list. And he has the audacity to read every single one of these things out loud. What were some of the things on that list? So a lot of the things on this list were be able to support and, and help my brother and my sister go to college. A lot of things on this list were things just to make my, my parents' life easier. And with that leverage, it made me agree to this man to read one book a week because that motivation, that purpose is so important. Most people probably put skydiving or bungee jumping on their bucket lists, but Jim's list consisted of taking his family to a fancy restaurant and buying them a nice house. A writer on our team who relates to Jim's experience as a second generation immigrant gave me some insight. In Asian cultures, familial ties are held in especially high esteem, and one's actions are generally reflective of the entire family. As a second-generation immigrant, Jim was born in the United States, but his family had to sacrifice everything, their homes, their friends, their family, to immigrate to a foreign country. Jim watched his mom work multiple minimum wage jobs to put food on the table. He felt a strong duty to his family. Disappointing them was not an option. There's a Chinese saying, 
that I'll play right now. 有志者事竟成 And this essentially means where there's a will, there's a way. And Jim was going to will himself into success, even if it meant he had to confront his own brokenness, the harmful self-image that others had painted for him, even if it meant he had to read a book a week or more. Fast forward, I'm back at school, and I'm sitting at my desk, and I have a pile of books that I have to read for school, and then I have a pile of books that I promised to read. Now I couldn't even get through pile A as it was, so how am I going to get through pile A and pile B? Well, I don't eat, I don't sleep, I don't work out, I don't spend time with people and socialize, and I just spend all my time in the library. So, what was the motivating feeling? My drive in going all in was that what's the other option? Is that I'm going to just end up quitting school and disappointing my parents? And so, if there it was an ounce of truth that these books could lead to greater success or happiness or rewards, that I could be able to support my family, everything always came back to that. And so, whatever resources I had in terms of time, in terms of willpower, in terms of just faith in this process. I put into studying, so I studied my schoolwork, and then I would study these books. And because these books were, they were inspiring. It did inspire me to continue. So now there's like positive momentum building. Very much so. The mere thought of reading made his palms sweat, but now he actively sought out books. Reading was a self-imposed trial, one that was challenging and sometimes painful. But soon he began to find value in it. Sometimes, however, we get lost in the challenges we give ourselves, and they become more detrimental than they are beneficial. It was the darkest time in my life. I was down to about 117 pounds. I was very desperate. I was in this kind of dark place. How many more hours could I possibly put into this? One night, I pass out. I fall down a flight of stairs in the library. I hit my head again, and I thought I died. Maybe part of me wished that I would have, because I was in so much pain, because I didn't have hope, I didn't feel like I had help, and I didn't know what else I could do to make a difference. We'll be right back after this break. Hey, so if you haven't already, you should totally subscribe to the podcast you're listening to right now. It's called Finding Founders, and it's awesome. At least my roommate Christian thinks so. Hey, Christian,、yeah. do you like Finding Founders? Oh my!、God. Cool. <laughs> as much as I cherish Christian listening, I feel like Finding Founders needs to reach a broader audience, and I'm pretty sure it would do well as a movie. So I called it the last blockbuster in existence, all the way in Bend, Oregon, and asked, "Hey,、uh, h- have you heard of Finding Founders?" Sorry, is this、uh, is this the Ben Oregon blockbuster? Yeah. You you guys like are like the last blockbuster in existence, right? Yeah, we are. How is it like working there? Um, I mean, it can get slow sometimes, but、uh, we stay pretty busy. So I learned that this guy's name was Zantana, and at this point, you might think, "Hey, you didn't ask him about finding founders." And also, Sam calling the last vestige of an obsolete franchise kind of sounds morose. 
It makes me question my own mortality and ask some big questions like, why are we here? What does this mean? But then you think, no, I can survive. If this lone blockbuster in the middle of Bend, Oregon has survived in the midst of its brethren perishing, maybe I can laugh in the face of death. Or at least that's what Zantana does. I don't know. I feel like it's almost like reverent, being the last in existence. Kind of cool. Well, I mean, I worked here before. It was uh, the last one, but that one closed down about two years ago. Did you feel like, ha, we got him. Like, we're still around. We beat him. Yeah. Um, not a lot of us thought we were going to outlive them, but we somehow just came out on top. Okay, maybe Santana is more level-headed and less existential about outliving the rest of his competition. But let's get back on track. Eventually, I did ask him about this Finding Founders movie. Do you guys have the movie Finding Founders? No, that we do not. Have you heard of Finding Founders? Uh, no, I have not. It, it's, it's based on this podcast that like interviews entrepreneurs. It's pretty cool. All right. Uh, I mean, is it a show? Well, it's a show. You can like find it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or, or wherever you get your podcasts. But... um. You should check out the podcast if you get a chance. Yeah, for sure. As you can hear, Zantana seemed pretty hyped about listening to Finding Founders. And you should be pretty hyped, too. So make sure you subscribe. But actually, I think I want to take this relationship to the next level. I kind of want to just like talk to you, the, the person listening, uh, and hear what you think about what the heck you're listening to and Finding Founders in general. Uh, so let's set up a time to chat. Email me at sam at findingfounders.co. That's .co. And uh, I'll respond. I, I'll respond to every email. So please don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, and I look forward to hearing from you. Now, back to the podcast. I end up waking up two days later in the hospital and I'm connected to IVs because I'm very dehydrated. I'm very malnourished. The nurse came in with a mug of tea. There was a portrait of our friend Albert Einstein on that mug. And the quote from him, the same level of thinking that has created your problem won't solve your problem. And it made me ask a new question, like, what, what is my real problem? And the answer I came up with right away was, I'm a very slow learner. It takes me so much time to do things that other people seem like they could do it in a fraction of the time. And it made me ask this question, well, how do I think differently about it? Like Einstein says, like, if I'm a slow learner. How do we become a faster learner? I don't know. Like, like maybe I can learn how to learn faster. I asked the nurse for the course bulletin for next semester's classes, and she hands it to me. And I start turning the pages while I'm sitting in that hospital bed. And I look at all these classes, and I realize that they're all classes on what to learn. You know, math, history, science, Spanish. But there were zero classes on how to learn. So I set that course bulletin aside, and I really doubled down into the books that my mentor gave me on the power of the mind, the human brain, you know, learning. And something happened when I made that commitment. And again, I was getting momentum because all these great stories about Dale Carnegie, 
right, about God, Napoleon Hill, you know, being rejected all these times and all the stories they would share. And I'm like, wow, failure, you know, maybe failure is not the opposite of success. Maybe it's part of the process. I wasn't getting traction, if you will, from my schoolwork. And I was like, okay, I'm going to just do the bare minimum what I need to do in class. And while I'm doing it, I'm going to go all in with these other books where I can fully commit to my own growth. Serendipity really started to unfold, meaning that certain things would just kind of work out where just like with that mug of tea with Albert Einstein was kind of like a message from my mentor. I would walk to see a, a friend and their roommate would have a book on their bed on speed reading. And I was like, well, can I kind of borrow that? He was like, yeah, take it. And I just like take it. I'd be enthralled because this like idea, like I can read faster, focus better. You know, I can remember the things that I'm studying. And I never even knew that was possible. It was that like unconscious incompetence. I didn't know. I didn't know. Right. But now I got this conscious incompetence where I knew I didn't know. Jim was beginning to realize that his broken brain wasn't so broken after all. What he really needed was a why, a justification for the choices he made and an application of the knowledge he gained in his actual life. And because of that perspective, that purpose, learning became a lot easier. All the time I was like last in class or I was so mediocre, right? I was on that part of the bell curve that made the other part possible. And then a light switch, it just kind of flipped on. And I started to really understand things in a new way. I started to be able to, to focus better. I remember I was sitting in a lecture hall and I was always still quiet in class. I would always sit all the way, you know, towards the back and the professor put something on the screen. Whatever he put on that overhead made me laugh. And everybody turns around to look at me because I didn't realize I, I did that out loud. Everyone's looking at me. And then um, I get really kind of scared. And then about maybe 15 seconds later, there's a chuckle. And then another laugh. And then there's this ripple of laughter in the, in the lecture hall. And we're all laughing at the same thing. But I realized, though, that I had read that overhead faster than everybody else and kind of got the punchline and just, you know, laughed out loud. And I, and, and that I had, for the first time, I had an ability that other people didn't have. And it was teachable. It was something that I didn't have, but I taught myself. And because I started seeing those kind of results, my grades improved. And uh, with that, my life started to improve. I didn't have to spend as much time studying like I was. And with that extra time, I could spend time, you know, on other things in life and socialize. My social life got better. My health got better. I started putting my, you know, putting on some weight and um, dating and doing all the things that, you know, that, that college students were doing that I would really deprive myself my entire life. Also, I was relieved and I had this sense of confidence and boldness where I started to believe in myself. And at the same time, I started getting really angry. When I'm reflecting on like all of the struggle I had my entire life, every single day waking up, dreading going to school, 
having this self-talk like I'm not enough. And then I was like really angry because the things that I was applying towards my schoolwork wasn't rocket science. It was like basic fundamental things, things I could have learned back when I was in grade school that would have really helped me back then. My dominant question was like, why isn't taught, why wasn't this taught back in school? Why'd I have to suffer and struggle, not feel like enough for so long? Jim grew up believing that he would always be defective and inferior. That mindset messes with your psyche and it makes you doubt your abilities, makes you succumb to anger and shame. Realizing all those years of suffering, of struggle, could have been avoided with a few tricks and some perspective, I can see why he was angry. But I actually think the struggle was important. It taught him resilience and cemented his work ethic. Now that he had the proper tools, he could use his diligence to his advantage. And soon the remedial student would become the teacher. Then I started to help my friends, you know, people that just saw this transformation. And I would start sharing because I didn't want them to struggle. I'm like, hey, this is like new. Like, hey, this sounds magic. It works. It's actually not that difficult. I start sharing with them and then you know, having that identity, I've never really been that person where people go to for help. You know, I was always thought like I was like the dumb one in class or the dumb one in my clique, you know, but is it possible that, you know, that I actually can do this and not only do it for myself, show other people that it's possible for them. And then they started to get results as well. And they started looking at me different, which was remarkable because maybe not only am I smart, but I also have the ability to, to shape and help other people. friend one just out of nowhere just like hey why don't you tutor i was like what do you mean he's like well why don't you what you're teaching you know me why don't you teach that to other people but i, I don't know how to find people to tutor and when i was thinking about it one day i was walking past a classroom that wasn't being used and i was like well, okay next week i'm just gonna put five or ten people in that room i'm gonna teach them what i've learned and maybe afterwards one or two of them wants to be uh, tutored by me I go to my dorm room and I take out a, a blank sheet of paper and I take a marker and I write on it, free speed reading, memory tips, get better grades in less time. And I put the room number and Thursday, seven o'clock. And the next morning I make photocopies of it on the way to class. I just put a few on the bulletin boards. Not many, but just, you know, sporadically throughout the, uh, the campus. Fast forward to Thursday, seven o'clock, I'm walking down the hall to do this like little, you know, talk. And I'm a little bit nervous because I've never talked in front of a group of people, but it's only like, I'm expecting five people, right? And so I show up, I turn the corner and there's this crowd of people outside of the classroom. And I go over and this crowd outside, I'm like, I tap one person on the shoulder who's in the doorway. I was like, what's going on inside? Tall kid, he looks at me, looks down at me. He's like, oh, there's a speed reading class. Honest to God, my reaction is, oh wow, what a coincidence that there's another speed reading class the same day, the same time going on, right? 
and I kind of work my way in and the, the room is full you know, there's people standing in the back and, and people are talking and I notice nobody's teaching and it takes my slow brain all that time to realize, oh no, these, these people are here for me. And I do a head count and instead of five or 10 people, there's 110 people. I am not just nervous of public speaking. I am phobic of public speaking, meaning I cannot breathe. My heart's beating out of my chest. I can't even utter a, a word. And I am so nervous that uh, you know, all these memories back in school come up of not being enough and always just training myself to just shrink down and be invisible. And I get up and I leave. And there's a fountain there. And I remember I was just getting my composure sitting at the fountain and kind of like doing this meditation, just trying to calm myself down. The water is just kind of calming my, my nerves a little bit. And I just have these, this flashback of that book report and not showing up, not doing the presentation. And, and that all comes flooded back. And it's not just the visuals. It's like the feeling of not enough and just feeling immobilized. Um, so I'm sitting in the fountain, I'm just going for a walk, doing this walking meditation, and I hear this voice inside my head, and it's, um, it's my mother's voice. And I won't tell you what she says, but the essence of it is, I promised to teach all these people, and I'm disappointing them, and I'm disappointing her. And I'll, I'll do anything to, to, to make them happy and proud and I'm doing this walking meditation back to my dorm room, but I stop and I don't even realize it, but I take one step towards back towards the classroom. And I realize that one step in another direction can completely change your destination or your destiny. And I end up going back to that classroom and still a crowd of students are still there. And remember, I'm 18 years old and I am in t-shirts and shorts and I look really young, and I have nothing prepared to talk about, and I'm phobic of public speaking. And there are a lot of students in there that are upperclassmen, teaching assistants, right, graduate students. And I go in there, and same, 100 students are there, just waiting, and I go up front. And embarrassingly, I don't remember what I said, but I do remember when I was done. Because when I was done after about 90 minutes, two hours, I wake up out of this kind of trance that I was like channeling. And I said, um, I don't know if I could help all of you, but uh, if you're interested, I could tutor you. It takes about 10 hours to teach you what I know. And if you like to go deeper, you know, maybe two hours a week for the next five weeks, $30 an hour. Uh, I'll be in the student center tomorrow at, uh, at noon. And if you have any questions, the entire group just gets up and they leave. Like completely gets up and leave. They don't talk to me at all. It's just like they get up and they leave. And the class is empty and it's complete silence. I'm there by myself and I'm thinking, what just happened? And I was, and I was so confused and then I was so exhausted because I never thought I could do all that, that, you know, when you have this fear, it uses up so much energy. 
And I end up passing out on the carpet. <sighs> and I wake up drooling on myself, like looking up, seeing the next class coming in that morning. You gotta go! And it's so embarrassing, but that, that was the deepest sleep I've ever gotten. Jim wasn't dreaming. This was reality. He had overcome his childhood fear of public speaking. Even more surprising is that he was the source of knowledge, intelligence, and wisdom in that classroom. But why pour so much energy into this endeavor? His decision to act reveals a source of his motivation, a strong sense of responsibility for both the well-being and the pride of those he cares about. His biggest motivator isn't material comfort, nor is it financial security. No, Jim's principles were formed during his childhood when he saw his parents sacrifice their time for their children in hopes of paving a path to a better life for them. They were cemented that day in his friend's father's library. When the father laid out for Jim an educational structure purely altruistically, to Jim, this journey was no longer solely about bettering himself. It had become about helping others. Now the question was, would they want more of his help? I get up and I, I run back to my dorm room. I take a shower. I go to breakfast. I go to class. And I'm like, oh, I promised to be there at student center at 12 o'clock. I'm thinking, please, please, just one person is there. And I turn the, the corner and there's a crowd of people waiting where I'd asked them to wait. And it's the same crowd from the evening before. After 90 minutes or two hours of being there answering questions out of 100, 71 signed up for a course that didn't even exist. And it was amazing because it totally shattered my beliefs because I was just hoping for one or two students to be there saying, oh, that was, that was interesting. I'd like to know more and ask their questions. And they did it for $300 a person. So I'm not even 19 years old and I have $21,000 cash. I take all of it and I invest in my own personal growth. And I really doubled down into accelerated learning and everything that I started teaching. I started traveling around the country, taking every course. I buy all the books and all the audio cassette programs. And I found these obscure texts that's, that was out there that I can make user-friendly for the average person. But I wasn't really planning on turning this into a repetitive thing. Something happened where one of those 71 students, she was a freshman in college, she read 30 books in 30 days. I didn't want to know how she did it. I know how she did it. I wanted to know why. And I found out that her mother was dying of terminal cancer. that doctors gave this woman two months to live, 60 days, and the books that her daughter was reading were books to save her mom's life. And I was like, wow, I was like, my thoughts are with you, I'm, you know, prayers, good luck with this. And months go by, I don't hear from this young lady. And then six months later, I get a call, and she's crying, and she's crying and crying, and I can't get a word out of her. Finally, when she stops, that they're tears of joy that her mother not only survived, but is really getting better. Doctors don't know how, they don't know why, they called it a miracle. But her mother attributed 100% to the great advice she got from her daughter who learned it from all these books. 
And in that moment, I realized that if knowledge is power, learning is our superpower. And it's a superpower we all have. We just have to learn how to unleash it. What Jim had done up to this point was nothing short of superhuman. Not only did he help others get better grades, he helped a family overcome cancer. I can't imagine how this must have felt to influence human life so deeply with knowledge he had initially learned so he could just be normal, so he could meet the bar. Now, he was leaping over the bar and bringing his students with him. I think this is just the product of finding your purpose and sharing it empathetically with the world. Jim had won his fight against fear and had an iron grip on his purpose in life. So he asked himself another question. How can I scale it? While I could perform and teach, in front of an audience, I still didn't want to be like known because it's not comfortable for me. It's not really who I am. So every opportunity to scale our company, I would always say no. For example, we'd be approached by infomercial companies and a very notable ones saying, this would be great to do as an infomercial you know, reading, memory, focus for our audience. And I would say, no, I don't really want to be on camera. But years later, my name is Jim Quick with Quick Learning, and I'm here as always to help you to learn quick. We created an online academy, and uh, now it's grown where we have students in 195 countries, you know, for for well over a decade. I still, to this day, whether I'm speaking live on Zoom or live in front of an audience, get butterflies still to this day. Because it's my nature more to be more reserved. My, my personality, I'm more introverted. It takes a lot of energy to be on stage. So knowing that we have students online, what fuels me are the stories that come from this. The, the hundreds of stories I get a week from people whose lives have changed and transformed. And these kind of stories of, of children also who had brain injuries like I did that learned strategies that helped them to, uh, that, that maybe my story helped inspire them to keep with it and believe in themselves. Jim is constantly trying to help those children. The children who couldn't learn the same way as everyone else. The children with the broken brains. I think part of why Jim has been so positively influential is that he constantly reflects on his experiences as a child. He uses those experiences to hone his empathy, and because he draws so much from the well of his childhood, those sources of childhood wonder bleed into the present. In many ways, the dreams of that boy of becoming a superhero had been realized, at least metaphorically. But soon enough, those dreams would come true entirely. A few years back, I get a call inviting me to do a training for the chairman of a large film studio in Hollywood. And when I do my training for the CEO and his executive team, afterwards, as a thank you, he walks me around his lot. And it's my first time on the lot. And I see this movie poster of Wolverine. They did to me what I am. I can't be undone. 
you know, and he's one of my favorite X-Men because he's like invincible and he's confident and he could heal rapidly. I mean, who wouldn't want to have those, those powers? And uh, I tell him, I can't wait for that movie to come out. And he picks up his phone and five minutes later, I'm sitting in his movie theater with 3D glasses. Fight with you, join the team, be an X-Man. Watching Hugh Jackman battle all of these super ninjas. And it was an incredible Friday afternoon. Afterwards, he comes up to me and says, Jim, how did you like the movie? And I was like, this is amazing. And I'm like being a child again. He's like, you don't know this, but I couldn't read as a child because of my brain injury. And I taught myself how to read by reading comic books. And my favorite comic books were the X-Men, not because they were so strong, because, you know, they didn't fit in. I felt like I didn't fit in. And on the weekends, I would ride my bicycle around my neighborhood trying to find these X-Men school. I wanted to find Wolverine and Professor X because I wanted to find my superpowers and, and my super friends. And he's like, wait, hold on, Jim. He was like, I didn't know you like superheroes. Do you want to go visit the set? I, we have another 30 days of filming the new X-Men movie. And I was like, no way. <laughs> I was like, this is like, and I get goosebumps. I call them truth bumps right now, even thinking about it. He's like, yeah, right in Montreal. Um, I was like, well, what can I do for you? He was like, do the same thing you did for us, teach them the speed read scripts to memorize and retain their lines faster, to be focused on camera. And I said, I could totally do that. <laughs> the next morning, we get onto a plane and they call it the X-Jet. And waiting for me, is the entire cast of X-Men. I was the last one to board the plane. And I mean, Hugh Jackman, Patrick Stewart, and I don't even see Hugh Hugh and Patrick. I see Wolverine and Professor <laughs> X right in front of me. When we land, the next day, the very first shot, where do you think it took place? In the X-Men school. I mean, as that, <laughs> coming back to that boy, that childhood, seeing my superheroes come to life in the actual school, I, it, was, it was a complete dream come true. Yeah, like it was literally, it, it was your dream for so long and I had to hibernate and then all of a sudden, like, everything that you could have wanted materialized. I never gave up on that dream. I really, I think even day deep down, even though, you know, it's not true, you know, your imagination is so powerful. It was just, um, it was just surreal. And I got to spend an entire week with them, uh, eating with them and working out with them and, and sharing with them and just really just watching them humbly just acts, you know, sorry. I'm just getting a little, um, but you're getting a little what I get only a little flustered just even thinking about it, you know, because it was, it was something that I wanted for so long and, um, it was, it was, it was beyond my imagination. 
When I came home a week later, there was a package waiting for me, and it was the size of a television. And I opened it up, and there was a frame photograph of me and the entire cast of the X Men. And even better than that was the handwritten note from the chairman. It said, "Jim, thank you so much for sharing your superpowers with all of us. I know since you were a child you've been searching for your superhero school. Here's your class photo." And um, yeah. Jim's childhood fantasy had become his reality. His life had come full circle and allowed him to look back and be proud of all he had accomplished. But soon, Jim's attention would move towards the future as he was confronted with the end, when he was confronted with death. So I was driving down from a speaking engagement and I was in upstate New York. It was during the afternoon, and something happened with the car where I lost control over it. Time was going by slow, but it also felt like it was going fast. The car ended up stalling where I was facing the ongoing traffic. Their car's coming, and then in my lane, there was a big truck coming my way. After having that dizzy spin, looking up, seeing in the distance a truck coming at me, and the engine didn't start at quite at first, and I didn't know what to do, and then it catches, and I drive off the road safely. I was in an altered state. Things were flashing before my eyes. I'm just glad to be alive. I was freaking out. Not in any danger anymore, but just thinking, "Oh my goodness, what what just happened?" And also having just seen my life spin before me, and having this dominant question that was front of my mind, like, "Whoa, what if something happened? What was my life worth?、Um, what would I have left behind?" Would my you know family know that I love them? You know, just my life's work, all of that. Shortly after that, I signed my book deal, because the the biggest thing that I put off was writing a book. I felt like legacy that the thing that was missing in my career was. Taking that knowledge, putting it into a book, and then maybe an eighteen-year-old unsure kid would be sitting down somewhere in his life, reading that book, like I was, and found some hope. This was a moment of reckoning. This time, it wasn't a quiet moment at the fountain. But a moment of life or death, when his life flashed before his eyes, his purpose once again came into focus. Jim knew there was more left to do, more ways he could communicate with his past self, the boy with the broken brain, and maybe 
If he could help that kid, he could help everyone else like him. With everything that you've accomplished and like the legacy that you've now created with like the release of this book, where do you think you are now? And what are you most excited for in your future? My mission is the same as it was when I was 18 years old, when I first started teaching my first students, was to show people who feel like they're broken, that they're really enough, and showing people really what's possible, that our limits are learned and they can be unlearned. So my mission is still the same, is to, to build better brains so people could have their brightest life and their brightest futures. The sky's not the limit, our minds are the limit. And that's, that motivates me more than anything. This is our what thir- third or fourth time talking. Um, and... Jessica and I, Jessica's the the outreach team lead. Um, we've been just floored by the not and, and maybe the, the 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 contrast between how obviously and like unequivocally successful you are, and how how humbly you approach these kinds of situations. But like even us, the time that you take to 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 just talk with people that. Are, are are just starting your journey and i'm wondering like how do you how has your success not gotten to your head like how how have you maintained this ability to, to like like be genuine it's very striking you have this like intense compassion um that comes out seemingly in every interaction i'm trying to understand like how do you how do you keep giving so selflessly in the face of of like a world where often that gets beaten out of you really quickly oh man um i i have this uh guiding belief that you don't you don't give to get you give because it's it's who you are um even when you think about my favorite superhero um, outside of the X-Men was um, was Peter Parker, was, was Spider-Man. And, um, you know, he had, he had, he had challenges, you know, he lost, he lost his parents and he, uh, he would be bullied in school and, uh, <laughs> and marginalized and, but he would still come, he would still do the best he can to show up for the people around him because I, I feel like that there's a, there, there is that superhero version of ourselves in all of us. And, um, I don't know, sound I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think about it. I, I don't know any other way <laughs> to show up. I, I know how people hurt and, and I, and I, and I feel it. And if, 
if anyone's struggling right now, doubting how much further they can go, you know, I just remind people like how far they've already come and that you honor people and you inspire them, other people around you with your grit and your grace. And, you know, I want to be that, I want to be a, that person for somebody else. And so it keeps me going. You know, I, I really feel like that every time I'm out there, I'm, I'm, I'm really trying to, to serve and support that nine-year-old boy, that 18-year-old kid that just um, was willing to work hard, you know, but just needed, you know, a little bit of a, just a helping hand. hand. The sky is not the limit. The mind is the limit. Jim went from being the boy with the broken brain to someone who has taught countless people how to maximize their brain power. Once upon a time, Jim's biggest impediment was his apparent inability to learn, and his biggest fear was having to vocalize his seemingly inferior thoughts to a superior crowd. Only by confronting these two things head-on was he able to see how he had deceived himself. In reality, we're in control of a lot more than we realize. Our limits are informed in part by societal feedback, but ultimately, they are self-imposed. Learning the boundaries of your comfort zone, of the limits that you imposed, is critical because only then will you be able to assess, recognize, expand, and break them. If you challenge yourself, you're bound to fail, but failure is good. It means you're bouncing against that boundary. And maybe one day, with enough bounces, that boundary will break. It happened to Jim, just like it happened to Leonardo da Vinci and Albert Einstein before him. That should tell you something. So if there's one superpower I've learned from Jim, it's resilience. It's to keep getting back up, to keep pushing those boundaries until you break them and you become limitless. See you next week. I'm inspired by everybody's hero's journey. So if you want to connect with me, I'm on social media at Jim Quick. You just have to spell it K-W-I-K. I think the ultimate quest, the ultimate journey we're all on is to realize and reveal our fullest potential. And so if you want the guidebook on that, it's called Limitless. Upgrade your brain. Learn anything faster. Unlock your exceptional life. And you can find that book and all my social media and my top podcast at jimquick.com, K-W-I-K.com. And I want to thank you, Sam. I, I really wish everyone who's listening to this, wish your days be full of lots of life, lots of love, lots of laughter, and always lots of learning. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our editing lead is Adrian Tapia, with the support from Joseph Cho, Eli Lauren, Matt Fernandez, Demir Gold, Spencer Khan, Sophia Donner, and Shannon O'Halloran. Our script writing team lead is Joyce Mock, with support from Avnish Sengupta, Prerika Chafla, Mitchell Lin, and Gemma Brandwolf, Elizabeth Bowen, and Sharon Chen. Our outreach and research lead is Jessica Lin. 
with support from Sasha Ivanova, Marie Vaughn, Lisa Lett, Alice Yao, Ankita Numbiar, and Jamil Swayze. Our design and social media team lead is Annie Liu with support from Phoebe Sajor, Tiffany Dang, Rick Liu, Ayla Erickson, Shruti Ramanand, Lingmu Hu, and James Barton. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.